this morning's passage is from uh, the Gospel of John. It, it, it contains Jesus' last public address. So this is it in John's Gospel. So this is the last time we hear Jesus speaking to a crowd. Uh, in chapter 10, which is where we are, Jesus continues to describe himself as the Messiah. He's this one who's coming, uh, that's fulfilling all these Old Testament prophecies that the Jews should have been looking for. Um, he uses two more of those I am statements. I am the door or I am the gate. I am the shepherd, the good shepherd. And he's connecting himself to these Old Testament prophecies. By calling himself the good shepherd, he is also implying that there must be bad shepherds, right? So it's important for us to remember the context of what's going on before this chapter. If you remember this, if you were here last week. So John's still speaking to the same audience that he has been for four chapters. All the way back in chapter 7, he went to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast called the Feast of the Booths. So since chapter 7, he's been in Jerusalem. Um, while in Jerusalem, this group of religious teachers called the Pharisees. These Pharisees, they don't really like Jesus too much. And they've once again kind of collided. Um, they don't have the best relationship. If you remember last week, Jesus healed this blind man. And this blind man began to worship him on the Sabbath. And uh, the Pharisees got upset. And so we have these Pharisees. They're supposed to be watching over the people. Um, they don't like Jesus. And Jesus has the audacity to say that he is the good shepherd. So as he says he's the good shepherd, they're in the audience listening. They're supposed to be the shepherds of Israel. So keep this all in mind as we read this. Pretend you're one of the Pharisees listening. It was your job to be a shepherd of the people of Israel. And now there's this other guy coming along saying that he's this good shepherd. How would that make you feel hearing that you know, you're supposed to be a shepherd? Here's this other guy saying that he's a good shepherd. What is he implying? What does Jesus mean by that? Maybe pretend you're the blind man that Jesus just healed. What emotions are you experiencing, either being the Pharisee or the blind man? What are you, what are you experiencing as you hear these words from Jesus being read? Are these words of comfort? These words of affliction. So let's start in verse 1 and read. Uh, we're going to do half. We're going to break this chapter up. Let's do to verse 21 this morning. Chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. The wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Let's pray. God, you are so good. Lord, I pray that we'd be in awe of your kindness, that you would shepherd us, that you would lead us, that you would care for us that you would know us by name. Or maybe we'd be encouraged. Maybe we'd be in awe of how well you care for us, that you love us, and that we are yours. God, open up our eyes. Help us to be um, able to see how you're at work in our lives. Give us ears to hear from you. May we leave change this morning. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I'm laying my cards just on the table this morning. Now, this won't shock any one of you who've heard a month's worth of my sermons, um, but I'm not a huge uh, fan of alliterations. Now, I, I don't have you know, any problem with other pastors using them, but I think alliterations can lead pastors to force something upon the text just to have that third J word. You know what I mean? And... And I find myself, you know, sometimes like, oh, I should, you know, I just need one more, you know, T word to make this all fit. And I force something upon the text. So I usually just avoid alliterations. But every now and then a passage just kind of gives you like this, throws you this softball. And, and this morning, this passage, I'm just, I'm going to go um, just old school preacher, three point sermon using alliteration. All right. So if you're taking notes, this is an easy one. Usually when I read five commentaries, you'll find five different outlines. But um, all the commentaries um, on this passage all have a very similar outline because this is just kind of like, here you go. This is an easy one. So here's my title. My title is Jesus the Shepherd King. Here's the alliteration. Uh, Jesus the Shepherd King who gathers his sheep. So that's the first G. Gathers his sheep. Who guards his sheep. Second G who gives his life for his sheep. So gathers, guards, and gives. That's where we're headed this morning. So Jesus uses this allegory in this passage. Um, it's important when Jesus uses allegory, we see it in Scripture, that, that, that 
these parables that they usually teach one or two points. Uh, you shouldn't overanalyze a parable. Like, don't carry out everything in it. You could get yourself into some bad theology. So, so with that, let's look at these first six verses as Jesus gathers his sheep. Verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. So Jesus says, truly, truly. We don't really speak this way, but this is a way that Jesus is helping the audience to know that something important is getting ready to come. This would be like you writing. You might underline or all caps, put it in bold, maybe choose a different color or font. Hey, this is like, hey, everyone, what I'm about to say is really important. Truly, truly. So when you see that in Scripture, that's what this means. The, sh- the sheepfold is basically maybe what you would call a sheep pen, okay? Some closed-in area to keep the sheep safe. A sheep pen, it could be um, shared by several families. Uh, if it had a gate, then there would usually be a gatekeeper, and the gatekeeper guarding it would know which shepherds you know, were allowed in, depending on which sheep you know, they're their fold. So Jesus says that the one who does not use the door, who climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. So, you know, he's climbing over the fence. He's not going through the gate. We know that man doesn't belong. I think locking yourself out of your house is one of the worst feelings ever. You know what I mean? Like, you turn it and you go back and you're like, oh my God, I cannot believe I just did that. So you have like Feelings of panic, like, oh, no, like, what am I going to do? Mixed with some, some feelings of, like, shame, like, oh, now I've just made everybody late. So I'm going to be late for work, late, you know, maybe for practice, kids practice. Mixed in with, like, feelings of just stupidity. Like, I cannot believe I just did that. I'm such an idiot. You know, all of this is wrapped up into you locking yourself out of your house. And then the moment, like, you lock yourself out, you begin to, like, hope that there's some door that maybe is left unlocked. You, know, you have hopes like that door I haven't used in weeks, and you never go out of it, but you have this hope like somehow maybe that door is somehow unlocked. And then you go check it. It's obviously locked because no one ever uses that door. And then you begin to think about two things. What window am I going to go through, right? Hoping like there's a window that you've left unlocked. And then second, like how am I going to contort my body through that window to where this trip doesn't, you know, this day doesn't end up to a trip to the ER. Like, that's going through my mind. And, and it never feels like, you know, I'm climbing through the window, right? It looks sketchy. And, like, somebody drives by and they just look at you. And, and you're thinking, like, hey, I'm not breaking in. I'm the owner. Um, but that's what they think because they see you going through a window. The owner doesn't go through the window. The owner goes through the door unless you lock yourself out. And so... That's what Jesus is saying here, that the owner uses the door. The owners don't climb over. Um, If you're the shepherd, you don't climb over the wall. You go through the gates. But verse 2, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. So that's how you know who has ownership. To him, verse 3, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. So here's some phrases like shepherd, sheep. Throughout the Old Testament, God has called his people sheep. And he's referred to these 
ones, this group that God calls out to put in leadership, he calls them shepherds. Probably the most famous of all Psalms, maybe the most famous scripture in the Bible, Psalm 23, King David writes this, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So notice here that the Lord is personal. He's my shepherd. If he's my shepherd, then conversely, I must be his sheep. I belong to him. He belongs to me. Verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Notice that you're going through something terrible here, the valley of shadow of death, but yet he's leading you there. So this is a shepherd. This doesn't just keep you from what you think is safe, but he's going to take you places that might you might not think is safe, but he's going to protect you because he has this rod and staff. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So this is a shepherd who knows the name of his sheep. These sheep are valuable to him. He provides care for his sheep. So one of the ways that God shows care for Israel was to appoint these human shepherds, leaders who were supposed to serve as God's representatives. They were to demonstrate God's care for this flock. But those who were supposed to lead Israel, those who were in these positions of religious influence and who were to be God's representatives for his people, they were not caring for God's sheep. So in Ezekiel 34... God condemned these shepherds for their mistreatment of the sheep. So listen to God's rebuke in Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel 34, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, But the shepherds had fed themselves and not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not 
be food for them. So these shepherds, they were not good shepherds. They were using what the Lord had entrusted to them to care for, to provide for. And these shepherds were using these sheep for their very own gain. They forced them to mend themselves, to feed themselves, to fend for themselves. But because the Lord loves the sheep, he set himself against the shepherds. And he himself promises here to care for the sheep. Then we see a few verses later in Ezekiel 34, verse 22, God says this. God says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, this is fascinating because God says here that he's going to set up this one shepherd, this servant David, over the flock. So we begin to think, well, it must be referring to King David. Well, possibly. The only problem with that is King David's been dead for many, many years. So it can't be talking about King David. So this verse has been understood as God referring to some type of David figure who would be called a shepherd. So fast forward hundreds of years, Jesus comes, chapter 10, John, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. I think Jesus is connecting himself back to this prophecy of Ezekiel 34. He's saying, you you guys remember God said he's going to bring judgment against the shepherds and then he's going to just have this one shepherd? I am the good shepherd. I'm him. I am he. So Jesus is likening the Pharisees to the bad shepherds of Israel from Ezekiel 34, and that he is this fulfillment of the good shepherd who's going to feed God's sheep. The good shepherd will care for his sheep. He will know them by name. We see this in verse 4, back in chapter 10. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes out before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but... They will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Now, we often think Jesus is being this master storyteller, which he is, obviously. But oftentimes, his stories weren't easy to understand. So after hearing Jesus teach on this sheepfold, the shepherd, this metaphor, the Bible says that they did not understand what he was saying. But notice here how the sheep follow the voice of their shepherd. They don't follow the stranger's voice, but they know their master. Now, I, I love dogs. I I'm, I'm, love dogs more than cats. Let me just get that up front. Cats are fine, but dogs are way better, right? Like, dogs, like, they just, they know your voice. No, cats, they do too, but it's just different, right? They don't even have names. They have names, but not really, right? They're just like, hey, kitty, kitty, and they all come because they just want something from you, because that's what cats do. Dogs, they come, they're obedient, they, they love you. They'll do whatever they can to make you happy. That's like the sheep. The sheep, they, they listen to their master. They know their master's voice. They're not going to listen to somebody else, but they listen to their shepherd. Sadly, there seems to be a shift in many churches today where the sheep, they claim to be sheep of the one shepherd, But they ultimately act like sheep of a different fold. 
What, what I mean is that there are many today who claim that Jesus would be their shepherd, but they don't listen to his voice. You, you see the problem in this text with that? Jesus' sheep listen. They obey his voice. But there are others that say, yeah, I, I, I follow Jesus. I, I'm, I'm one of his sheep, but they don't really follow Jesus. They, they follow the voice of others. The good shepherd calls us to obey all his commands, not just some of them, not just when it's convenient, not just when it makes it easy to keep your friendships with the world, but all the time. So Jesus, he gathers his sheep. Next we see Jesus guards his sheep. Look at verse 7. Jesus again says, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I would have loved to see the Pharisee's face as Jesus is saying this, as he's teaching this. I'm guessing at some point the Pharisees would have, because they're all sharp, they would have figured out what Jesus was doing with the shepherd analogy. They, they would have picked up on it. And I'm guessing that even though they knew Jesus was indirectly referring to them as the bad shepherds of Israel, um, I, I, I think they would realize, like, here, he's taken this metaphor a bit deeper. Here he says that those who teach that there's a different door, these teachers, Jesus compares to thieves and robbers, and these thieves and robbers only come to steal, kill, and destroy. I think the Pharisees, they're going, well, you know, that's, that's not what I'm trying to do. And so Jesus says here that the gate that the Pharisees are trying to lead the sheep through is a gate or a door that leads to destruction. Jesus promises to guard and protect his sheep from those who desire to hurt them. Now, remember what just happened last week in the last chapter. The religious leaders, these Pharisees, they just excommunicated a guy who publicly confessed that Jesus was Lord. You remember that? They, they kicked him out of the synagogue. They were essentially trying to keep one of God's sheep from using that gate, the synagogue. Thankfully, that gate, the synagogue, that they were keeping this blind man out of was the wrong gate, so it ultimately didn't matter anyways. Now imagine how um, these Jews who are listening. So you're a Jew. You've been listening to these Pharisees for years. They'd been taught by the Pharisees that it was only through them, that their gate, keeping their list of good deeds, that a man could be in God's favor. So many of these Jews, they had faithfully obeyed these men. They respected them. Now this man Jesus comes along teaching that his way was the right way. I'm guessing that many of these Jews would have been torn. Like, who do I trust? Do I trust the religious leaders who we've always had? Or this new guy? But this new guy seems like he's from God. He seems different from these men. He seems unique. He seems like he really is from God. See, their decision of whom to trust seems to be a very crucial one. Jesus says in verse 9, I am the door. 
Jesus does not say that he is a door, but he's the door. Now, as Americans, we don't like when people use exclusive language, do we? Like the door. Americans, we like options. When you go to the store, you have an entire aisle of candy. Why in the world do we need a a whole aisle in Walmart of just candy? You have chocolate section of candy. You have a peanut butter section of candy. You have chocolate and peanut butter. You have sugary candy. You have sugar-free sugary candy. How that works, I don't know. You have hundreds of options. But with religion, there's only one option. Jesus says, I am the door. But that doesn't seem fair, does it? I have, I have hundreds of options for candy, but only one choice for God. It doesn't seem very fair of God to give us one way. But we need to understand, we need to see the grace of God in this passage. The grace of God is that he has even given us one option. See, we often, we, don't, we, we think we're entitled so we often think that, that, heaven, um, that, that, that heaven is this place that, like, that's the default. Everybody's just going to go to heaven. Um, like, you have to do something really bad to mess up going to heaven. That's just where everybody's going to go. And then there's just some select few really bad people. Those bad guys, those will be the ones who go to hell, but... Most of us will go to heaven because we're not that, what, bad. That's what we kind of say. Here's the problem. This is, that's exactly the opposite of how Jesus taught. Jesus taught that the road to destruction is what? It's okay. You can speak up. It's wide. Then Jesus says that the road that leads to life is narrow. Only few will find it. So these good moral teachers, these Pharisees, Jesus calls them thieves and robbers. He's basically saying, if you don't point people to go through the door, who is Jesus, then you are a thief. You are robbing them from true joy in their life. Jesus is saying there's only one door that truly matters, only one door that leads to salvation. And those who come through this door will find pasture. They will have an abundant life. All other doors, they may promise these things, but they cannot carry through with their promises. So these other doors, like the door of morality, it may look good, but it's the wrong door. Notice here that entering the gate through Jesus does two things for you. One, it protects us from danger. Um, that's what being inside a door, inside the gate does. If you, know, if you have a fence, a wall, you go through the gate, it, it protects you. It, it provides safety from the wolves. But we also see that entering the gate also provides pasture. Pasture is where the sheep feed. Jesus keeps us from going hungry. He provides health for us. We often forget about that part when it comes to salvation. Often we think that, that Jesus saves us from sin, that we, we think it's, from, it's, 
It's being kept safe that nothing can harm us. But Jesus here, he wants us to have life, to have life abundantly. See, the Christian life is not simply being saved from something. We're also being saved to something. We forget about that part oftentimes. We just think that we're saved from something. We forget that he's saving us to something, this abundant life. We're not just protected from destruction of sin. Jesus gives us a new life that we should be enjoying. Our lives should be full of joy being his sheep. So Jesus gathers his sheep. He guards his sheep. Lastly, Jesus gives his life for his sheep. Look at verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them, scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So here Jesus shows that he is different from the religious leaders. He says that they're more like hired hands. To the Pharisees, Jesus says that their caring for the sheep was more like a part-time job, a way to make some extra money. It was a side job. If tending the sheep is a job, what happens when the, you know, when the wolves, when the predators attack the flock? Well, I'm not getting out in the middle of that. That could be dangerous. Um, those aren't my sheep. I'm not going to lay down my life for some silly sheep. The owner can always get some more. A hired hand loves his life more than he loves his sheep. Five times in this section, Jesus promises to lay down his life for his sheep because Jesus is not a hired hand. These sheep belong to him. He loves them more than he loves his own life. Isn't that beautiful? That's why he lays down his life to protect the sheep. They're his. When Jesus sees danger, he doesn't flee. He steps out in front of danger. He's like, you're not taking another step towards my sheep. They're mine. I love them. This is why he gets this title found in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. He's earned it. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Usually when we get to this section, when we get to these verses, we're so quick to be in awe that Jesus lays down his life. We're so quick to be in awe that Jesus is staking claim on these other sheep that I think often we miss this magnificent statement found in verses 14 and 15. Listen to what Jesus says about you. If you're here this morning and you feel like you don't matter, that you aren't that important, then listen to, take in, meditate on this magnificent truth. Jesus says, I know my own and they know me. So how well does Jesus know you? Verse 15, look at this. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. How well does the Father and the Son know each other? I mean, this is incredible. 
The Father and the Son, they were together before the beginning of creation. The Father and the Son, they are one. There's no division. Then Jesus is saying, in the same way, I know you. Jesus says he and his sheep are one. Isn't that crazy? That Jesus knows you in the same way that he knows his Father. I, I need to be reminded of that every day of my life. I need to wake up reminding myself of this truth. That Jesus knows me. That, that he is my good shepherd. This is beautiful. This intimate knowledge qualifies him as a good shepherd. So it wouldn't be for our good, um, our benefit, like to not follow Jesus. Like he's a good shepherd, therefore we should follow him. It's to our benefit to follow a good shepherd. So why do we look so uh, many, in many other places for this joy? Like you look, uh, maybe this will bring me joy. No. Be obedient. You will find joy in obedience. This is what's crazy. Oftentimes we think, well, I don't want to become a Christian because I have to do all these things, all these rules. I have to keep God's commands. We think if I follow them, he's going to be a joy stealer, right? He's going to rob me from all the joy. It's no fun to be obedient. What Jesus is saying here. You're going to find more joy when you obey my commands than when you disobey my commands. Is that amazing? But why do we look in so many other places? We should be looking to this good shepherd. Jesus, I want joy in my life. So what do I, how do I need to obey you today to have that joy? One of the things that this good shepherd calls us to obey in is to go and tell others about him, to be witnesses. Jesus is about gathering more sheep. Did you, did you catch that? He says in verse, 16, in verse 17 that there are other sheep from outside this fold. Jesus says, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. That's amazing. This verse should embolden our love, our passion for evangelism and missions. You see that? That there's other sheep. He's already staking claim to them. And that they will listen to his voice. Now, some will read this and think, well, if Jesus is going to bring them into this fold and they have no choice but to listen, then we don't have to do anything. We don't have to share our faith. The work's already been done, right? Maybe you've heard that kind of thinking. That type of thinking is anti-gospel. That's not found in the Bible. The Bible says that the way Jesus brings these others into his fold is by confession, Romans 10. The way these others confess is by hearing the gospel. The way these others hear the gospel is by other faithful sheep preaching a true gospel. That's us. Jesus desires all nations to become one people as part of his flock. We must bring them in, and they will listen to his voice. I am hopeful this week at kids' camp that there's a sheep there that doesn't know that he or 
or him or her as a, a sheep that they don't even know yet, that they think, you know, that, that they're still lost. God is calling them. He's drawing them in. When they hear the good news of the gospel preached this week at kids' camp, they're going to confess their sin, begin to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'm hopeful of that, that there could be one of these sheep here that Jesus is talking about in chapter 10 at kids' camp this week. But how are we ever going to know that if we don't go there and preach the gospel, give them opportunity to respond and confess? Not everyone you share the gospel with is going to repent and trust Christ, but it seems like these others will. How encouraging is that? This encourages us to be bold in our evangelism because there are going to be some that you share the gospel with that will respond. So that's why we're bold. We know that God's calling people to him. Our role is to be a witness about the good shepherd who is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Look at verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to, to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Jesus says, I lay down my life. No one's taken it from me. I love that boldness. See, this is why the gospel of John continues to use the phrase, but yet his time has not come. Over and over we've seen that phrase. Because no one's taken his life. We've seen where the Jews, they wanted to murder Jesus, but they've been unsuccessful. Why? Because no one takes it from him. He will lay it down when he's good and ready. And right now he's not ready. He'll try to kill him again, but not yet. But when he decides to lay down his life, which we're coming to that point, this is now in John 10 where late fall, that spring, he will lay down his life. So we're five, six months away from him laying down his life. When he lays down his life, his death becomes a sign of his love for us. He shows us. Let me, let me show you how much I love you. I'm willing to lay down my life for you. But his death wasn't just a sign for us. He didn't die simply to be an example or to demonstrate the depth of his love. He died because his sheep were in danger. He died in our place, and by his death, we are saved. His death solved the problem. What was the problem? Isaiah 53, 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus takes on our sin. Our iniquities are laid upon him. This is why we must continue to preach the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus. Jesus died to take our place. Should have been you, should have been me, but he took my place. Here's the good news. Jesus didn't stay dead. Verse 18 says he has the power to take up his life again. Jesus rose from the dead. He continues to shepherd his flock. He truly is a good shepherd. Question for you this morning is, will you put your trust in the hands of a good shepherd? 
Will you be obedient to him? Will you allow him to lead you even if or when his leading may take you through the valley of the shadow of death? Will you put your trust in the good shepherd? Let's pray as the band comes back to lead us. Father, I pray that this morning that the gospel was preached, it was heard, that maybe there's someone here that needs to respond. They need to confess. Maybe one of, the, uh, one of these other sheep that you're calling is here this morning, and they don't know you by name. They belong to another fold, and Lord, I pray this morning, maybe they are willing to confess their sin and give their life to you. If that's you this morning, then just pray that. Just repent of your sin. Confess that you want Jesus to be your good shepherd, that you make a terrible shepherd of your own life, that you need help, and you want him to be the shepherd of your life. Confess that to him. Then let someone know that. Let me know. Let whoever invited you know. Father, I pray that you'd give us all the grace, the wisdom to know that it's best to be obedient to you, to trust the voice of the good shepherd, that you protect us, that you guard us from the evil one. So I pray that you would, that you would uh, use your rod, your staff, when we start to wander away, that you would take away things that we love that may cause harm to us so that we can remain obedient and be a part of your fold. Lord, thank you for how you're at work. Help us to be obedient this week in all that we do. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.